we're in like a crisis with the work and I don't know what's going to happen, right? Because there is not enough care and insurance companies are starting to crack down because so many people have sought out care in the pandemic and clinicians, we act as if we're supposed to be the stopgap. And I feel like we're absorbing the responsibility of the systems that should be trying to assist people in getting adequate care, right? right. Adequate mental health, adequate medication care, adequate housing, all of the things like we absorb that struggle. And then we act as if we're supposed to have more to give. Moral injury. It's a term that often evokes images of soldiers deep in the fog of war, or perhaps of a surgeon in scrubs holding their head in their hands in the hallway of a hospital emergency department. A therapist sitting in the quiet privacy of their office, or in the cubicle of the community mental health agency open office plan, isn't really what pops into most people's heads when someone says the words moral injury. But maybe sometimes it should be. I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That, the show where we talk about the things it feels like a therapist can't say. I'm going to link in the show notes to a page from Syracuse University's Moral Injury Project, where moral injury is defined as the damage done to one's conscience or moral compass when that person perpetrates, witnesses, or fails to prevent acts that transgress one's own moral beliefs, values, or ethical codes of conduct. Further definitions they include there are a disruption in an individual's confidence and expectations about one's own or other's motivation or capacity to behave in a just and ethical manner, and a deep soul wound that pierces a person's identity, sense of morality, and relationship to society. As therapists, we are, among other things, professional secret keepers. And there are a lot of things about that role that set us up to be particularly vulnerable to the kind of wounding that those definitions of moral injury articulate. We are in daily intimate contact with the moral complexity of human beings, and we also have front row seats to the profound moral failings of the larger systems that we and our clients have to regularly navigate. Today I'm talking with Dr. Kay Hickson, a dear friend, colleague, and mentor of mine, as well as a community treasure in our therapist community here in Portland. I can't say enough good things about Kay, and I'm excited to introduce you to them through this conversation. Dr. Hickson and I get into some of the big factors that contribute to moral injury among therapists, like individualism and the unrealistic burdens of excessive responsibility that we place onto individual clinicians. We talk about our role as secret keepers, both for and from our clients and the public, and the damage that role can sometimes do. We talk about the moral pain that can arise from watching clients that you deeply care about make decisions that conflict with your own moral compass, and how the larger systems that we operate within prevent us from living out our own values, both as clinicians and as regular humans. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Hickson and come back next episode where I'm going to do a deep dive on the therapist as secret keeper and the ways that role impacts us as moral agents in the world. I'm so excited to have you on because, um, well, for many reasons, but one being that this podcast would literally not exist without many of our conversations. So yes, very excited to have you here talking about moral injury today. So I think that that idea, like the concept has become more prevalent uh, as applied to, you know, outside the sort of like wartime or like veteran setting that it emerged, you know, into that we're seeing more discussion of the idea in healthcare workers and other fields and so forth. But I don't think that we're talking about it yet so much in terms of mental health. And so, yeah, just really excited to um, have that conversation and start with some of your thoughts um, in terms of what you've seen and what you've seen other people experiencing and all that. Oh, Reva, it's so good to be here with you. Um, I feel like we have supported each other throughout the pandemic in minimizing like the impact of the pandemic on each other. So just starting out with that idea that like solidarity support, like witnessing 
having people to talk to has been invaluable to me during this time. And Mm -hmm. I mean, this pandemic has been horrible for so many reasons. And when you think about something like moral injury, I mean, we should probably define it eventually, but we'll just, we'll just talk. But I think living as a human and a therapist in the year 2022, in the years leading up to 2022, it's just rife with moral injury. And as we like broach a million deaths in the US and however many million of deaths in COVID in the world, I think one of the things that is the most painful about this time is the lack of recognition of the struggle, the pain, the suffering, the grief of this time on everybody. And then, especially as clinicians, this has been wild. Like we haven't even had a chance to reflect on it because we're still in it. There's so much to say and it's gonna take so long to unfurl like what's happened in the last couple years. Um, let alone the four years ahead of that. Um. Right. Yeah, I think it's it's one of the things that I've been thinking about um, and that I alluded to um, in, in my last episode in terms of like being a therapist in the world right now. I think we're going to have to get good at like thinking on our feet in a much more existential kind of a way, right? Like that piece you said about like, there's no time to reflect on it because we're still in it. And I, and I kind of think it's going to, keep being like that, whether it's the pandemic or it's climate change stuff or it's political, whatever, you know, there's going to be this ongoing um, chaos and instability and, you know, collective trauma. And that's, that's the context in which we're going to have to learn how to make sense of all this stuff, you know? And, and I think one of the things you said, just to, to start this outright on this very, very macro level of like, I do think that like, actually, being a human being who has values, pro-social, you know, positive value system in uh, the world today, there is like an inherent moral injury to that because we are all inherently participating in these systems that perpetuate climate change and, you know, oppression and all of these things. There's no like opt out. There's no like way to just be a person who's living out these positive values, you know, and I think one of the things that they have looked at in terms of likelihood to experience moral injury, right, is that like people who have a deeply held value system are more likely to experience it because it's it's the possibility of having that violated is higher than if, you know, somebody is not so values driven, whatever that looks like, you know, so I think that that's, that's very real that like we're in this global context where we have to contend with this stuff just by virtue of being alive and trying to do good things in the world. Totally. And I think it takes on a like heavier connotation, you know, if you have these deeply held value systems. And for us, those came out of, you know, political theory and political organizing and community organizing. And I brought those values into the field with me. We're living in this time where waking up in the morning, violates all of our (laughs) deeply valued beliefs because something's happening that is deeply, deeply painful, deeply uh, oppressive and troubling on every level. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. the first time I heard someone really apply moral injury to the work we do, you and I do, was um, Kim Young, dope Black social worker, who talks about how the whole field of social work is like rife Mm. with moral injury and hearing, hearing them talk about it, hearing her talk about it was like really helpful to me. And, and obviously it's being discussed in healthcare because of all of the things our healthcare workers have gone through during the pandemic. But we are like the silent secondary, Mm -hmm. like we're not on the front lines, quote unquote. And the thing that's a bummer, about any of these concepts that we might talk about today, whether it's, you know, moral injury, vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, is that our world often puts it on us as the individuals to try and prevent these things. And it gives us individualized solutions that like further pathologizes us for suffering. And the reality is, is we got to stop calling a lot of this thing. This is what Kim Young says and other people like, 
we're all talking about burnout right now. And I'm not one to get perfectly granular with concepts because they're all constructs anyway. But if it's burnout, then it's our fault. But if it's like, if we think about things as more moral injury, we can start to look at the systemic conditions of the workplace, the systemic conditions of society, the oppressive structures, and stop denying that that macro layer is is what's influencing so much of everything. And, you know, that's very relevant for our work in the field where we're, you know, pushed into this individualized medical model, right? So I just think there's a lot to be said for not being in denial, right? Facing what's happening, trying to figure out what this collective trauma really is and how to deal with it. And like you said, we're gonna have to think on our feet. And I think the days of, of therapists and counselors being not political, they were never there for you or I, but they're definitely over. This work is entirely political and it's gonna keep being that way. So like, there's just so much to say about all of that. The whole concept of burnout is realistically, the idea of burnout is seen as a failure of self-care. Yeah. And you're speaking to the idea that like one of the things that would help all of us is if these systems were more honest about the limitations they actually have instead of gaslighting us, that everything's fine and we just need to go take a bubble bath. And it's really just our own fault that we're suffering. When in fact, I mean, this work of living in the world and doing clinical work and helping people with the trauma, it is just not for the faint of heart, you know, to pay attention to what's going on in the world and to deeply attune to your client's trauma narratives and to deeply sit with the pain and suffering that people are experiencing. I can see why some people want to be in denial, but like, Mm -hmm. I don't live there. You know, I don't live there. I live in the place where I reckon with this stuff every day. I don't know all the answers, but I know that we have to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. And when I think about my own clinical struggles in the pandemic, I was sitting here just a couple days ago, probably thinking about this, this, this conversation we're going to have. And I was like, what is going on with my experience of the work? Right. And a lot of people, if you ask them, and, and for me, particularly, Obviously, it's just so much crisis at one time on your caseload can be very taxing, right? Right. And then you have your own personal stressors. I have my own personal stressors as a person. But really, the thing that gets me in this work is the systemic stressors that I'm facing as a clinician Mm -hmm. doing this work or the systemic stressors and oppression my clients are chronically experiencing. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not even necessarily the human work. It's, again, the layers that are coming at us and that we're trying to mitigate in this individualized, private, one-on-one conversation, which, you know, sometimes makes me feel bananas as well, because we're all in these rooms talking about the same stuff. And I hope to do more group work uh, as a result of what you were talking about in terms of needing to think on our feet and look at the existential components of the future and the existential components of the grief and doing more collective trauma and grief work together, like we're going to have to get out of these private individualized rooms right? and like come together and like be more connected. I just think those are the things that stress me out the most. It's not my clients. It's the reverberations of talking about systems of power, ineffective systems, discrimination, all kinds of all of the isms and the phobias, you know, that that people are experiencing. Well, and I think one of the things that you just spoke to that I think is so important is like that there's an, a way in which like individual therapy, right, by the nature of it, the private inner sanctum quality that it has can sometimes contribute to this sense of isolation with all of the stuff that comes up. And and I don't want it to be construed that, I, that I'm saying, therefore, we should be doing something different entirely or sometimes when therapy is being critiqued, there's a lot of baby out with the bathwater, you know, stuff with it where it's like, well, if it's too individualized, then we just need to be doing all group and all whatever this. And I, and I don't obviously don't believe that. I think, you know, the, there's also an incredible power in that sense of privacy and intimacy and, you know, uh, separate space. And I also do realize, I mean, this winter, this past winter of, uh, you know, 2021 going into 2022, people were doing so bad. 
like everybody's mental health was in the fucking toilet. Yep. Um, mine included, frankly, you know, Cheers. Like, Cheers. everybody was doing terrible and I'd have clients showing up doing terrible, you know, session after session. And I'm just like, you know, like at some point, I think I posted on Facebook, like, hey, just FYI, you know, putting on blast, everyone's doing terrible right now. I have a, you know, I'm looking behind the curtain here as yeah. a therapist and and I want everyone to know they're not alone with how bad they're doing because it's not just you. And I think that that's, that's the sort of weak point and that's perhaps something that we need to consider how to mitigate, um, you know, with this this aspect of the work that we do. Well, we got to speak here at this point about how neoliberalism has infiltrated our field of like personal responsibility politics. Yes, absolutely. Right? Like, like yeah. it's our personal responsibility to heal. It's our personal responsibility to not be affected. It's our personal responsibility to like somehow deal and deny, dissociate from what's going on. And I, I think right. that we do, of course, have personal responsibility to take care of ourselves as clinicians and to do our own healing work. So that we are not a total hot mess <laughs> as, as we do the work with our clients. Right. And I, I yes. fully believe in that, but this idea that um, there is just so much suffering here in this time that we're living in. And I know you and I both hope it would have, would have gotten better, but it's not. And it, it seems like one of the challenges with moral injury for me is that I don't have deeply held spiritual beliefs personally. Mm. So that makes it, harder in some ways, I think for me as an individual, but I think that's what, you know, moral injury does is it just like, it challenges all those beliefs that you do have. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so my beliefs of hope, right. Or my beliefs yeah. of transformation of liberation get challenged. Right. And yeah. with the chronic chaos of this world and the, like, I don't know, just again, perhaps overused word right now, but the, the national gaslighting project that is living yes. in the that is living in the US at this time. Yes. Um, it's like, don't look, don't see, don't talk about it. Um, or just like fight about it in a very binary way on social media, you know, right? Yes. <laughs> right. Soundbite versus soundbite. Just right. go like that for, you know, ad nauseum right. until someone gets sick of sick of posting. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I think what you said about the the values that moral injury challenge um, challenges is like, uh, is very key, you know, and I'm thinking about the way that intersects with the individualism piece. Um, and just to, to, to make this a little more concrete, um, you know, for people listening. So, so, uh, I'm just going to contextualize it with, um, with the therapist shortage, right? So there has been a shortage. There are not enough therapists. There have never been enough therapists, but there really, really aren't right now, especially um, everybody's full or more than full. And, you know, there are vast number of people in a much greater level of need than, you know, in the past, um, at least in my experience. So we have people, I think, especially through this past uh, fall and winter, tons and tons of inquiries, right? Of like people, you know, are you available? Are you available? And having to say no, 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 no. And I think that that for a number of therapists has been has felt like a very morally injurious experience, partially because they want they genuinely have a uh, a value of being of service to people and wanting to help and because it challenges their sense of the parameters of what they're able to do. Right. right. So like like we're supposed to be able to help anyone who shows up and you know be able they're supposed to be enough and we're supposed to be enough and we're we're supposed to be able to have this impact and to be there for people who are in need and when you have people you know metaphorically knocking on your door day after day after day after day and and having to turn them down over and over and over and over and over again i the response to that has been pretty intense i think from the therapist that i've seen that people are really carrying a lot around that it's not at all any particular person's fault or uh -uh. responsibility or blame. It's, it's a systemic problem. I have also had tons of inquiries from my actual community, my friends, families, yes. like, so like on top of the clients trying to see care, so many people in our lives are asking us for referrals and we have nowhere to send them. And then the national news outlets keep putting out these articles that are like these feel good articles of like go seek therapy. And you and I, if we even get into this conversation about insurance companies, it's going to completely like tip off into this whole other land of like the distance between the reality of like, go find a mental health counselor 
and and the reality of that happening i mean that's a that's a chasm to be honest and like no one wants to talk about that but you you are totally right we are we're in like a crisis with the work and i don't know what's going to happen right because there is not enough care and insurance companies are starting to crack down because so many people have sought out care in the pandemic and clinicians like you're saying there's supposed to be this we act as if we're supposed to be the stopgap. And I feel like we're absorbing the responsibility of the systems that should be trying to assist people in getting adequate care, adequate mental health, adequate medication care, adequate housing, all of the things. Like we absorb that struggle and then we act as if we're supposed to have more to give. And we, we just don't. There are people leaving this field in droves right now. Like people are done. People are like, I can't do it. And I think that as the need gets higher, I mean, all of these issues are so intense. You know, the overdose deaths in teens and the like child mental health crisis associated with the pandemic and the lack of kid therapy care that's available. I mean, that is terrifying to me on its own because there's just less people in our field who work with children and teens and families. And I just think we feel pressured because we are in this positionality in our profession to like, again, absorb the the struggle, the trauma, the suffering. We're supposed to be the stopgap between our clients and the insurance. We're supposed to be the stopgap in so many ways. And like, we just can't do it. it it's not going to matter if you or I take on one or two or three more clients, except it's going to make the work more difficult for us. And for the whole caseload, it's it's a systemic problem. And the way that men, mental health policy has happened in this country, can you imagine the layers of like how many ways that mental health care gets doled out into our society? It's in so many different ways. It's so complicated. Healthcare has made it so complicated that, yeah, go get a go get a counselor. Go find a counselor. It's just like almost like an empty suggestion to me at this point, because it is so hard. It is. Uh, the phrase get, get help, find help or whatever. Yeah. I'm just like, shut right. up. Anytime I hear that, I'm just like, okay, you guys, the rest of the people need to show up for us and help start thinking about how to help your people. Like we need to collaborate here because like, right. we are not, you can't just ship them off to our office or, you know, telehealth session and expect like, you know, these amazing, yeah. you know, fix it results. Um, you know, I'm thinking about how, you know, a couple of pieces here, like having spoken to um, a number of other therapists about the shortage, right? Um, I was really taken aback by the secrecy. Um, but like there was not an openness, um, I, I have noticed about about how dire um, the access to care situation is right now. I've seen a little bit more of it in the past few months. There's been a bit of um, media, uh, which I've seen about like, you know, here's why you can't find a therapist right now and kind of going through the issues, which is really refreshing. Um, but I've seen a real reluctance among many clinicians to be honest publicly, not behind the scenes, but to be honest with everyone else, right? About what, like what's going on. And I, I guess it seems like that's a manifestation to me. That seems like it's a manifestation of the shame, like the personalized shame that like, I mean, that's the only thing that I can think that it, I'm curious about your thoughts, if you've noticed that or if you've, uh, what your thoughts are and what that might be about. I really appreciated when you have posted like very direct things on your own Facebook about this um, and spoken in such a frank way, because I think you know, that's why the name of your podcast is <laughs> a therapist <Yes>. can't say that. <laughs> right. Because like you and I, like you, you live that in all realms. Like yeah. a therapist can't say that in public. A therapist can't say that in the privacy of the room. I, I probably have not been as transparent publicly as much as I could be. And I am extremely fearful of creating more hopelessness mm. in my community. Personally, mm -hmm. this is what drives me to be a little more silent I wrote an article a while back, like 10 reasons why your mental health provider stopped taking your insurance or never started. Yeah. And that was hard to put out because I was afraid that it would deter people who obviously really need it. It's like, it's hopeless, some of it, some at some times. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm scared of that, like for my own self, 
Like, because that's a place I can go easily personally. But I I do think we're keeping secrets, right? Mm -hmm. Like in our field, like we're, we're obfuscating certain truths. And I think there might be many reasons for that. And I think we do feel a whole load of responsibility. And Mm -hmm. that just can't fall on us individually. And we need communities like you were referring to. Like we need communities of care and people have been talking about this for a long time. Like we need to help each other and support each other, you know, not just in these professional relationships, but figuring out how to radically support each other uh, with grief, with loss, with struggle, with mental health struggles, with thoughts of death, you know, Mm -hmm. and because yeah, you can't just ship them off, like you said, to us and like, yeah, we're good, you're good. I mean, we don't even live in a society that believes that long term psychotherapy is valid. Right. These insurance companies want us to like fix symptoms and get our clients out. And the problems of living in this world will not be solved by a simple treatment plan or a worksheet, you know, or a workbook, you know? So I just think there's so much to this it's like such a bound kind of thing and we're, we're pulling some threads here today but there's right. so many threads well and i think you know the other thread i wanted to follow up on just that that piece about keeping secrets because i mm-hmm. i wonder you know what it it brings up for me is like how many of the people who do this work are people who grew up keeping secrets for the authority figures in their lives the systems in their lives right i would guess it's a very high number well, and, you know, you and Nancy referred to this on your episode, like, we're all like the parentified children in our families. And we like basically are paid professional codependents. <laughs> like, like, I mean, sorry to say, but like, I mean, we have to be mindful of that, yes. obviously, right? Like yeah. in our work, you know, people talk about the isolation of private practice and there's just truths, I think, that are hard to speak about in relation to this work. And I think one of them that's really hard to kind of deal with is that we we really can't help everyone. And one of the reasons why we can't help everyone is because they need a lot of other things besides us. They need excellent health care. They, they need a really good psych nurse to manage meds, but not to just, you know, call it in right Mm -hmm. they need more economic stability they need to have like a sense of purpose in their lives that is not like defined by capitalist alienation yeah (laughs) which yes i don't have that in my bag of tricks or whatever (laughs) no and and that's the thing too the secret i think we're kind of not even willing to talk about yet or even know for ourselves no shade because these are hard things to talk about is that this field and the tools we have in our toolbox may not be enough for what is coming. Right. That is the part that feels very unspoken to me that I am wrestling with. I have been in this field for 20 years. I did not think this is where we would be when I started as a, yeah. like as a society. I questioned deeply, like what of these tools is going to be useful in the coming years? And that, that scares right. me. That scares me for us. That scares me for me. And when you even look at something like moral injury and maybe what the treatments are, you know, a lot of them rely on not over accommodating these beliefs that it's hopeless or it's horrible or I have harmed someone or it's all my fault or, Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is I think we're reckoning with some huge systemic conditions like you're talking about, like late stage capitalism and climate chaos and, and all of the other pieces that connect to those two that, that I just think we are going to have to innovate and really think through how we're going to do this work. Because if we end up individualizing it even more than it is now, that is going to be deeply harmful to people. Yeah. But, if you and I show up to a session with those paradigms, then that means we have to just sit with a ton of suffering a lot of the time. And we have to be with that and we have to not push it away and not deny it and not minimize it and not blame the individual for the suffering. And that is really hard. And not also not uh, 
indulge in the false belief that we are capable of like fixing it. Absolutely. That is the piece that is hard to hold. I mean, we we've just in this pandemic, therapists have just done so much like of holding space for what we're both going through ourselves and the client, right? Yes. <laughs> like, like we don't have the answers. And the sooner we can face that, I mean, I think the better off we'll be. And but we we do have trauma work, which is something that you and I both value. Um, yes, yeah. And the idea of helping people with their past trauma, um, so that they can perhaps be more resilient for future difficulties, trauma, um, I think is still very valuable. To me, that is key in all of this, uh, from the general like trauma component to the collective trauma, moral injury, uh, social instability all of that stuff together. There's so much about this that to me is about the storytelling aspect, right? And the the truth-telling aspect. And I think that's what maybe that's part of the weak spot, right? Of the of the work that we do and the 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 private nature of it and the sequestered nature of it. Um be, because we can do that in here and and that has certainly a great deal of value. But I think, you know, what one of the things that um I think has really got me stuck in so much anger about how the pandemic is being handled at its current stage, you know, society-wide and and the government and and all of that. It's not just that it's going to have, you know, a terrible repercussions on people's health. It's not just that it's ableist. It's not just that it, you know, disproportionately impacts people in poverty, all of the things, you know, children, mm -hmm. you know, laundry list of, of, of people who are being harmed by the way the yep. pandemic is currently being handled. It's not just all that. It's also the fact that by virtue of like this role that we have in people's lives, we have held and contained so much pain that is a result of this experience. Um, we have showed up day after day after day and, you know, managed to juggle our own stuff, our own pandemic stuff, our clients' pandemic stuff, all the repercussions of that. And then the rest of society has the audacity to pretend right? That it, it's not that bad. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't that bad after all, and it's over and we're just going to kind of move on from this no big deal. And it's like, I have this sense of, I want to put that back in everybody. I want everybody else to hold their piece of it. I, I think that part of the problem here is that we're holding a disproportionate piece, you know, a healthcare workers holding a disproportionate piece. You know, there's, there's all these roles who are holding this disproportionate impact. Um, and I think there's some way that that weaves in being able to mitigate the impact of a moral injury um, to put some of the responsibility right back where it belongs and to have people hold the totality of the truth and the story seems really crucial to me in, in managing and contending with that. And I think it's so hard because how do you, how do you reverse this? Right? Because it's just such a wide ranging set of mistakes that have been made in how to handle this pandemic. And at this time in history where we're so like divided, right. And like, like there are literally people who believe everything is fine. Right. I'm sure some of them are listening right now and unsubscribing. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know how to live in the world with those people. That's also part of the moral injury too, of like yes. getting back into the commons Yes, and like how to reconnect to the commons and to the larger communities that we've been alienated from and just being like, how do I deal with the fact that there are people that don't believe this even is real? Like, I just, I seriously can't articulate that with language in a way that like the, like the, the pure frustration and terror of that. And I mean, the fact that we have to say this right now is kind of bananas, like that we have to like articulate it so clearly um, in order to like fight back against that, right. Mm -hmm. And mitigate the impact as you were saying. And I think truth telling, storytelling, connecting with each other is going to just be continuously important and trying to figure out how to get out of these houses we're in with our 
you know, semi partially or, or specifically nuclear families and be in the world together. But I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's pretty hostile out there. Like there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of quick heated anger um, amongst the public, if you will. And um, I just think we're facing a tough time and we just have to do it together though. And we can't, I think the start of it is it's having these kinds of conversations and not having them perfectly and not having everything figured out, but just being able to hold the complexities and connect around it. I think that matters so much. And, but that is a very intense reality of like, there are people who fully believe conspiracy theories right now. And it's very compelling to believe in conspiracy theories. And we don't have the answers for that in our field. I mean, our field's always like 10 or 15 years behind what's going on in like the real world because yeah. ethical codes are created over a course of 10 or 15 years and mm-hmm. graduate school's behind. And like, we're learning on our feet like all the time yeah. in this in this work, especially right now. Um, and I think that as we're talking about this, we are talking about that individualized clinical questioning that we have to do to figure out how to be good clinicians in this wild world. But I think there's a lot of things systemically that obviously need to be changed so that all of this does not keep coming down on us in this room with another person. And so I know one of the things you and I talk about is what's going on in community mental health settings right now. And I feel deeply concerned about what's going on in community mental health settings. And if people don't, you know, there's community mental health settings and then there's private practice, right? It's kind of a two-tiered system. And I just think, um, you know, that system, like the moral injury, I think that clinicians go through running through that system. And like the fact that, you know, these nonprofits are, you know, trying to figure out issues related to like profit and they're essentially service rationing mm-hmm. um, all the time. And that deep disconnection that occurs between like the leaders, the administrators and the direct service workers, you know, yeah. and like, there's just like, so if we pull back to not just the macro macro, but that intermediary mm-hmm. um, piece of how the mental health system itself and the health system and organizations and systems and agencies and schools, training programs perpetuate business as usual. There's just a lot that could be done there that I, I'm shocked that community mental health essentially looks the same way it did 20 years ago as when I started. Like there's been utterly no innovation. Um, and, you know, those folks who are doing adult outpatient mental health, you know, they have 120 people on their caseload a lot right, of them. Right. So they're not doing therapy. Like, right. You they're can't. Doing, no, you can't. And so who gets to do therapy weekly, right? Right who has access to, to healthcare uh, benefits, who, which networks have clinicians who have openings on the panel, do you know, like, yes. So it's like, I didn't mean to like abruptly pull us back to that, but I think there's so much there that we again are absorbing and trying to manage through this individual clinical relationship that just, it feels like so much bullshit. Yes. I mean, I, I, I know I'm glad you brought it back there because I think that is, it's really key um, in terms of just illustrating how like, say, you know, you come into this field and you're a person who, you know, has the values that everybody deserves access to mental health care, you know, good therapy, you know, sufficient, adequate, you know, frequency of, of sessions and all, you know, all that stuff that everybody should have that, you know, and that you really believe in this work and 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 in in equity and access and all that there's actually no way there is no way you can individually as an individual therapist live in accordance with those values you can't you can nope. either be in community mental health and 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 be in the shit show that you just described with a caseload that's impossible um to do actual therapy in um where you know your clients aren't getting their other needs met to have the basic stability that they need to really you know benefit as much as they could from the therapy that they may actually be getting, et cetera, et cetera. Plus you're getting paid shit and, you know, burning out quote unquote, because you're so unsupported or, you know, you can, um, do what we do and be in private practice and take cash and see people who can pay cash. And that's clearly my preference. Um, 
I think it's where I'm, my skills are being most effectively used. I absolutely don't think I am, I am not, so, you know, doing something to solve the problem of equity here. You know, it's like, that's, it's, it's that I am choosing which, which way would, do I find it more tolerable to violate my own value system? This is the way absolutely. that I find more tolerable. That's, and that's, that's it. It's harm reduction, essentially. Mm -hmm. And like the idea that you or I should be responsible at that level for access to care and equity right. in this field is is the delusion of how, again, neoliberal politics has infiltrated this profession, you know, and again, maybe you and I've talked about this as a calling too, or or the saviorism that's connected to it, or the like idea that we should be doing more. It's, it's, I mean, everyone around me is doing as much as they can. Mm -hmm. I just don't see anyone resting <laughs> on their laurels in this work. Right. I, I don't know. I don't know those people probably, but like everyone I know is doing everything they can. And there's no way that we should be absorbing that those issues that you just spoke about as individual therapists and feeling guilty about them. You know, I'm getting ready to get off of all insurance panels because that is a disaster for our field. I mean, therapists are rife with anxiety because of fear of what's going to happen. Is their money going to get clawed back? Are they going to get audited? Is there going to be a utilization review and they have to justify why they're still seeing a client? And, and, you know, this is the hidden kind of outcome of the Affordable Care Act is that we had to seek and get medical necessity for billing insurance companies. And like, you start talking about this and people's eyes glaze over. They're like, <laughs> right, like already, like even in our field, people are like, who, can, like what? And it's like, but there's a system here at play that if you trace it, there's big policy decisions that impact this individual experience of being a clinician and facing mm -hmm. these phenomenon like compassion fatigue, burnout, moral injury that are so big, that are so beyond us. And then we're talking shit on each other in Facebook groups, you know, like as if there's real choices here. Yeah, sure. You can stay on insurance panels. I mean, more power to you. I support everyone's individual decisions on what they want to do. Honestly, I think everyone gets to make their own choices and decisions. We are really the middleman in that relationship with insurance companies in a way that I think is highly toxic. And our clients don't know how much we're holding because we're supposed to protect them from it. Right. And then that, you know, harkens back to that parentified dynamic, right? Of protect the more vulnerable person from the, the, the in this case, institution that is doing harm. And that is a damaging position to be in. There is no way to not be damaged by that dynamic if that is your role in that system. Yeah. It's brutalizing, I think, because I like to externalize things and I am a namer of things and I want to I want to speak truth to power as much as I can. And um, I'm done. You know, I'm done holding that part, yeah. you know, and I'm just saying, you know, hey, like this is the reality. And I know there's going to be judgment. Right. I know there's going to be I know there's going to be. Yeah pushback. And that to me is, again, a, a misaligned, a misaligned judgment. It, it's not aligned in the right direction. Right. And these insurance companies, um, you know, someone just sent me a Twitter uh, chain from a, a clinician who was saying these insurance companies hate therapists, <laughs> like they hate us. Um, I'm sorry, they do. They don't want us to do what we're doing. They don't believe in the work we do you know, th this work is devalued in our society at the same time, again, that national news outlets are saying, go seek therapy. It's, it's devalued at the same time. And that is a paradox that's very difficult to like reconcile. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Absolutely. I think that's, that's very true. And it's not lost on me, you know, of course, that the, uh, in that dynamic where this group of people in this role are both being relied upon um, profoundly and also devalued. It doesn't, it's not lost on me that most of the people in this field are women, um, you know, or mm -hmm. women adjacent. Yep. I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, that that's the case no. that, uh, absolutely. so yeah, it's, it's, a maddening reproduction of that, you know, misogynist, sexist dynamic around caregiving 
and emotional labor. Yes, right. And and, 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 and I yeah, and it's like I don't even want to say caregiving because I think that it's not to me this work is not about caregiving, but I it's seen as caregiving and it's and it sure. is it is uh it is an emotional labor role and that you know as all feminized labor roles are um is completely devalued even while at the same moment those are the roles that if suddenly someone stopped doing them tomorrow society would collapse immediately you know absolutely so i'm thinking uh we should wrap up soon but I, and yeah. this, i'm putting you on the spot because i i didn't Great. prep you for this but um so i've been asking everybody about to share if if you can think of something um what i'm calling uh an I, a therapist can't say that moment um and i'm sure you as i do have many where you know you say something and and uh whether that's with a client or two colleagues or to people out in the world who have their ideas of what therapists are. Um, and you immediately get that sense of like, oh, that's not, that's not something a therapist was supposed to say. So if you have an anecdote like that, that does come to mind yeah. and you want to share it. Very recently, I, I, I took a risk with uh, a client who was grappling with, do I go to graduate school in the Pacific Northwest or do I go to the East Coast? And like Reva, I held out my opinion for as long as I could. <laughs> I honestly did. I honestly did. I, and that's sometimes where it comes out for me is like giving an opinion or just saying, fuck that. You know, like I'll, I will say that kind of stuff, uh, you know, as much as I need to. Um, when I came against this feeling of like, okay, I've seen this client a couple of times now. I'm not speaking my opinion about something I kind of do know about, like mm -hmm. what's going on in the Pacific Northwest graduate programs. And I was finally able to say, listen, I think you should go to the East Coast for school. I do not think you should stay here. And to just say that, I was like, Ooh, I am really like, why is that such a bad thing? But it was just, it's like that influence and that power that we have. Mm -hmm. as clinicians, but I've studied power. And I understand there's positive power, right? There's positive use of power. There's these things like a therapist can't say that that are very positively powerful and useful, and that we should not hold back when something is going to be, you know, possibly helpful. Now, would I be offended if the client didn't take my advice? No, like, but like, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I don't have an opinion or I don't have some knowledge, you know? Yes, totally. But I think not a lot of them stand out because it just is so folded in, like just, just speaking the truth and, and being honest and self-disclosing in training settings. One of the things I've started to do and when I'm doing my, the trauma training that I do is, you know, depending on the group I'm in, I will I will tell them that I have received the trauma treatment that I'm training them on. And that feels edgy sometimes. Mm. And and it, it shouldn't because we all know that we're quote unquote wounded healers. And like you said, experienced all the things that we're trying to help other people with, but like just the edginess of like being a whole person, you know, in this work. That's something mm -hmm. that has come up with with everyone that I've talked to so far um, for this yeah. this show um, is the way we all sort of give that lip service to oh we're all working on our own stuff and we all have you know things and that's an important part of this work as therapists and yet when it comes to the specifics how um, how the stigma is still so immense um, oh my god it's so strong yeah like supervisees can't even talk about their own mental health struggles in their graduate programs. And right. so Without, that means we're yeah. right. Mm -hmm. That means we're not doing self of therapist work in those grad programs. Yes. Right. That, that means we're not preparing people to manage their own shit while they're working with people who may have the same kind of stuff they do. And that makes me feel bananas that yes. like that maybe they are perpetuating uh, that stigma by by keeping those conversations out of the classroom. When right. And, fact, and having yeah. that, that clinicians are not being scaffolded and what does it actually yeah. mean to do work yeah. on yourself? Um, beyond like go to your own therapy, get help. 
right, right, right. Just right. get That's help. That. Just like go go get your own therapy. And it's like, yeah, but how is that impacting the work you do, how you show up? You know, I talked to a clinician today about doing their own work and how that's probably one of the most important things that we can do in all realms of this work. And um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a one sentence conversation. It has a period at the end of it. But but really, it's like a million things. I just think you're starting such good conversations with this with this work that you're doing that I think just needs to just needs to be out there in the zeitgeist. Totally. You know, whether yeah. we have all the answers or not, whether it pisses people off or not, you know, whether it makes people uncomfortable, this is what we're experiencing. And maybe not everyone's experiencing it, but I'm very grateful. And I really appreciated having all these little bits and bobs come up and just having a conversation with you. And I appreciate just the time, the energy and the focus to just have conversations like this together. So thank you, Reva. Well, thank you. It's been amazing as usual um, talking to you and really excited to dive into these ideas. Um, on an ongoing basis because I think it's exactly as you're saying it all just needs to be out there being talked about and not fixed you know as as we we go through the changing sounds of what it is going to mean to to do this work over all the things that are happening out there thank you Reva you can find Dr. Hickson at KarenHicksonLPC.com, and I very much recommend you do so because they put on some amazing trainings for therapists and supervisors that you won't want to miss if you're picking up what we're putting down here at A Therapist Can't Say That, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on whatever your preferred platform is for listening to podcasts. And it would be especially great if you would share the show with your therapist friends who could use a breath of fresh air in there too. You can find me, Reva Stout, at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. If this episode brought something up for you that you'd like to share with me, or you want to tell me about your own A Therapist Can't Say That moment, I'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to shoot me an email or send me a voice note at reva at intothewoodsportland.com. Looking forward to next time. <laughs>